If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Look, as we head into the uh, winter months, and it kind of feels like we're already into winter, uh, look, there, there are okay. going to be some real challenges that lie ahead when it comes to dealing with COVID-19. And so there, there's a conversation to be had about how best to respond to this virus, to to keep it at bay as best we can, and to try to get to that, that finish line, whatever that looks like, a vaccine or something else. There's been a lot of debate in recent weeks, though, about this idea of herd immunity, that if enough people get the disease, it will no longer be spreading, which seems oddly counterproductive, the idea of using sickness and death to ward off sickness and death. But it is getting a lot of attention. It was something called the Great Barrington Declaration that a number of other people have signed on to. It's got some attention from the White House and others. In response last week in The Lancet, uh, the John Snow Memorandum was published, offering a, a different perspective on this question, signed by a number of epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists. One of them on the line with us here this afternoon, Dr. David Fisman, professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto. More, by the way, at johnsnowmemo.com. Dr. Fisman, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Your thoughts, first of all, on, on this uh, approach kind of, of of dueling documents or, or petitions, um, it's it's sort of, a, I guess, a, an atypical way of having these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd actually like to get away from the whole dueling documents narrative because I think that was the, the point of the Great Barrington stuff being floated in the first place is to create – to create really the false appearance that there is a disagreement, there's sort of a two sides thing going on within the epidemiology or infectious disease community. Um, I don't think that uh, uh, anyone who knows what they're talking about is advocating herd immunity via infection. Um, I, th I think the folks who, who created that memo have been more or less saying the same thing since last spring. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. The difficulty is herd immunity is sort of a concept that's been appropriated from vaccination, where what we like to do is create enough immunity in a population that disease doesn't spread anymore. So, for example, with measles, we like to see over 95% of the population vaccinated because that prevents measles from taking off if it, for example, gets imported into a population, uh, comes into, you know, Calgary via the airport or what have you. The difficulty is that getting to her, uh, herd immunity threshold through infection with COVID would require that you basically let the disease run rampant in, in your population. And this thing has a an infection fatality ratio that's about 70 to 100 times higher than influenza. And we've seen already in the spring wave in places that did not react to it quickly, how much death and destruction that causes. We're increasingly aware of long-term health problems associated with this infection. Um, and we also know from places that have tried herd immunity, tried herd immunity, 
community that you simply can't separate out more vulnerable from less vulnerable people in your population. So, you, you know, so there was an editorial in the New York Times this morning, which said, you know, the herd immunity approach is really mass murder by design. And I think that's right on. Right. And further to the, this idea of herd immunity, and you alluded to it, that typically it's been in the conversation around vaccines, that it's difficult to get 100 percent right. uptake on, on any kind of vaccine. So, you know, given whatever the disease is, you're trying to prevent how contagious it is. We can come up with a number that maybe with this vaccine, maybe 80 percent would be sufficient uh, or maybe it needs to be like in the case of measles, a, a lot higher than that. that. That's typically where the conversation around herd immunity is, has come from. Right. We've never taken that approach with a virus, have we? Right. No, no, we haven't. And it's it's um, it's odd and it's unfortunate. And, uh, you know, I don't want to ascribe motivation to folks, but um, it's it's a strange twist for this to have taken the folks who are pushing the G the GBS, which I've started calling the great BS memo or the great BS declaration, GBD, I guess, is um, have been pushing the same line really since um, very early on, since February, March, April. Uh, it's the same uh, uh, individuals from the same few groups around North America, and I don't know what their motivation is. But they've been very persistent with this narrative. Initially, one of the authors was pushing the idea that we got to herd immunity after only 10 or 20 percent were infected. Well, you know, we got to 10 and 20 percent infected in the U.S., and this has kept right on going, ditto the U.K. So, you know, as, as their ideas get discredited, as, as time rolls forward, they just sort of retrench and uh, sort of change the goalposts on the argument. I, I, I think the idea here is to try to, you know, just keep society wide open so that, you know, whoever is behind this stuff, you, you know, can, can control the policy response and not have a policy response that saves lives and protects people. And I don't know why anyone would be motivated to do that. But I do know as someone who's been watching this for, for quite a number of months now that there, there has been this sort of moving of the goalposts by the same couple of groups and people. Um, so, no, as, as you say, you know, the herd immunity threshold that we cross is, is, is a function of the reproduction number of an infectious disease, which is the number of new cases created by an old case. Um, that, that's actually quite low for COVID. It's, it's somewhere between two and three. Um, and you can calculate that if you're mathy as uh, uh, the threshold for herd immunity is just one one minus one over the reproduction number. So if we have a reproduction number of three, one minus one over three is 66% need to be immune in order uh, to achieve herd immunity. The problem is that if you got there by allowing 66% of your population to get infected, if you get there by infection, that point, that that critical threshold happens when the epidemic's actually at its peak. So you still need to go all the way down the other side in terms of, you know, the rest of the folks in the population effectively wind up being infected by the time you're you're over with, as opposed to if you get there via vaccination, you 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 know, you you get there without having a massive amount of infection. If we think about what the implications of that would be for the Canadian population. We have a population of about 40 million. Let's say we get to 80% infected by the time this is all over. Uh, that, that's 32 million Canadians infected at an infection fatality ratio of one in 100. You know, you just take take the last two zeros off 32 million. I think that comes out to about 320,000 deaths, which is, you know, just, just completely irresponsible and unacceptable and is not even getting into the fact that you would be 
uh, talking about uh, potentially young people having long-term effects from this infection, which we're only starting to understand and know about. So it's an absolute non-starter from a policy point of view. To me, what's more interesting is, you know, putting this in the broader context of disinformation and false dichotomies in science, false, you know, the yeah. creation of the false appearance of conflict. Um, and, I, and, and I think it's, it's not the first time that's happened. We've seen that around climate change. We see that around lots of things where there are well-funded groups that will put forth narratives to make it look like there's, there's disagreement among scientists when, in fact, there really isn't. In, in terms of why this would have some appeal, I mean, I, I, there, there is obviously a fatigue, right, that, you know, we've had some hard months, things started to improve, we're, you know, we're now facing again some some hard months, and it just feels like this is really yeah. long, right? And the uh, the idea that you know, sort of a tantalizing idea that hey, we can just stop, we don't have to do this anymore, and you know, it's it's sort of a a way of giving up, but but billing yeah. is is something different, right? It, it it does have some appeal, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. I'm you know, I I think we're all t very very tired of this, um, and I think. It's extremely challenging for leaders because good leadership in a situation like this means being proactive to prevent things from happening in the first place, which is difficult politically. You know, if you're closing some, you know, some sector in your economy, closing it down preventively rather than reactively, you know, waiting until your ICUs are filling up and then say, saying to people, you know, it's time to stop indoor dining. It's much easier to sell that politically if you've waited until your ICUs fill up. So the good leadership is even harder because it, it means you're doing this stuff proactively before a crisis happens. Um, yeah, we're absolutely all tired of this. I, I, I think there's there's important room for us, though, as a country to do things in a smart and focused way. We understand this disease much differently now than we did in the spring. Mm -hmm. For example, we understand the importance of aerosol in, 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 in transmission. That allows us to really focus on closed, close, crowded, continuous exposures in things, in places like restaurants, in places like bars, um, and so forth, in terms of being much more targeted. I know here in Ontario, nobody wants to see bars and restaurants go out of business, but in terms of this, the fraction of our economy, um, uh, bars and restaurants represent 1.5% of a very large economy. So in terms of being more targeted and more focused as a, the premier, as premier Ford has done here in terms of closures of, of very small fractions of the economy in the interest of protecting the much wider economy, I think that's clearly the way to go. And I think you can look to countries like Japan that have basically come up with ways to pay, pay bars and restaurants to stay closed. You know, it's a net win for us as a society to slow down the transmission of this virus. So I don't think, I, I think that's, an, that's another kind of a bit of a straw man in the, in the, in the, uh, in the great Barrington thing is this idea that it's either herd immunity or full on lockdown a la, you know, Wuhan in, in, uh, in February, uh, 2020, that's not what we're talking about at all. Now we're talking about much more limited, much more targeted stuff, which really works. In fact, probably the most important natural experiment, uh, that we're seeing in Canada right now is playing out in Quebec, which has the largest number of COVID cases counted in, in, in the country. They put into place about two weeks ago. Now they're red zones. And what we've seen is since they put in those red zones, closed bars, restaurants, gyms, introduced masking, 
indoors for high school students, the red zone areas actually have declining case counts. The orange zones, which didn't have those restrictions, continue to rise. And in fact, most of the growth in Quebec at this point is coming from the zones without those restrictions. I think that's a really important natural experiment that Canadians can look at in terms of what we can expect downstream of these these hopefully limited closures. And I think that, you know, our, mo- our most likely future time horizon is, look, we, I mean, we don't know what the future brings here. This is a new thing. But we do know that in past pandemics, in 1918 and 2009, the fall wave is the bad wave, right? 60% of the people who died in 1918 died in that fall wave. And it's a confluence of the seasonality of the virus, that it's a virus that wants to surge in wintertime, combined with um, with the fact that we're all getting a little bit weary of distancing and so forth. So there's a seasonal boost that the virus gets, and there's still enough of us susceptible to maintain a really high reproduction number. And that's where the deaths happen. So this isn't open-ended until we get a vaccine. We're looking at getting through the next few difficult months and getting, you know, getting past the new year and then reassessing. So I don't think it's open-ended by any 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 means, but, but we need to be smart and targeted and prevent people from dying unnecessarily. Necessarily. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, as mentioned, uh, the John Snow uh, Memorandum uh, is uh, online at johnsnowmemo.com. Uh, Dr. Uh, Fisman, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate the insight. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right, take care. Uh, that is Dr. David Fisman, Professor of Epidemiology, University of Toronto, one of the signatories uh, of this John Snow Memorandum. Uh, his thoughts on the herd immunity question and also what he sees as a strategy moving forward uh, to try to keep a lid on this virus. We'll take a break here. Uh, much more still to get to here this afternoon. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.